0: Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. So I want us to think back to a minute, uh, to a time when you were a kid. Think back to a time where you were... In a spot, you had a bunch of friends around you. You were kind of goofing around. And then from across the room, maybe it was your mom or your dad or that. I know some of you guys went to Catholic school and there was that, that nun who was across the, <laughs> the way looks at you, doesn't say a word. But they just look at you and you say, yep, I need to adjust my behavior accordingly. <laughs> I think we probably all can say that, that we, we know the look, right? <laughs> well, I was going to get to that, but yeah. <laughs> Kevin, did Carolyn ever give you the look? <laughs> Was it just? Was it like the force? You could just like sense her presence when she walked in. And <laughs> so we we have the this process, and so I was kind of thinking back to my my personal experience, and I couldn't I couldn't think of any specific time in my life where I was like, oh yeah, that that definitely happened at that moment, and. That's not to say that it didn't happen and it's not to say that it was because I had some like perfect behavior as a child. That was not it. Probably what was more likely is it just happened so frequently that it was just the norm of of my interactions with people in authority. But... I can absolutely think of some times where I have shown that look to both of my kids. <laughs> that, that time where you just walk into the room and you're like, I don't really know what you were doing, but I'm pretty sure that you shouldn't have been doing it, so I'm just going to look at you anyway. And they look at you, and then their response back is, yep, you were totally doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. <laughs> and and there's this kind of look of, oh, yeah. And and so the look is kind of universal, right, if we we put that in quotes, the look, and and. What I was considering is i don't even think it's exclusive to humans i I think if you watch enough like uh natu- national geographic like Discovery Channel shows, like you see those mama bears with the the bear cub who's like messing around, and that mom just kind of turns around and the baby bears just kind of like slowly walking the other way, like yeah, I totally know I did something wrong that I think that, <laughs> that this is something that we see in creation right so what does this tell us? How, what is could this possibly have to do with Nehemiah chapter 9? Uh, <laughs> it means that sometimes knowing that someone in authority is in the room is what it takes to influence our behavior. But hear this. God is always in the room. let's just stop for a minute. Like you're, you're out playing in the front yard and mom taps at the, the, the front window. And then you recognize, oh yeah, mom, mom knows, mom's, mom's watching. I need to have my behavior the way it's supposed to. God doesn't necessarily sit there and tap on the window, but God is watching. It's like, well, Matt, this is a little heavy handed for a Sunday morning. a little little much, right? This is. But just think about it for a minute. Look back on your week. I mean, gosh, look back at your morning. (laughs) At the words that you said. At the the thoughts that entered your mind. At the things that you saw. Now, here we are at at church where, where we're all supposed to be on our best behavior, right? But God has always been in the room. It's not like God was just waiting here at Wood Street Chapel for you to show up and be like, Man, what what went on at your week? God has always been in the room. And so here with Nehemiah, we, we have this context, right? Of the wall is finished. The people have been established in the city. God's word has been brought forth to the people, which we read last week. And now we see that there's this recognition of, oh, man, There was this whole set of rules and regulations and ways that we were supposed to be living to reflect that we were God's people and we haven't been doing any of it. God was in the room the whole time and we didn't even realize the way that we were acting was wrong until he gave us the look just now. Like That's kind of where the people of Israel are. They're like, we just got the look and now they're all ashamed about it. And so now we see that there's this commitment to confession, this commitment to repentance. And so if we start at Nehemiah 1 through 5, it says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Now, for those of you that don't know, you're not typically in a super great state when, when that is, is your, your outward appearance, right? When, when we put burlap sacks on for clothes, <laughs> when you haven't eaten any food and you're putting dirt on yourself. That's an outward expression of how I feel internally. We don't do that so much anymore, but do you guys ever have those days where you're like, I, I could deal with some dirt on myself. This has just not been a great day. <laughs> Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all of the foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs, the Levites were Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canani, and they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabani, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. So Nehemiah and the, the leaders of the people, they come and they lead the people to confession. So they, they have just heard this recitation of the law, right? And the law being Genesis through Deuteronomy. They, they've just sat down and they've read that. And now all of the people are saying, man, we are so far off the mark. And so the, the leaders come and they lead the people to confess their, their personal sins, but it's not just their personal sins. It's also the, the sins of their ancestors, their predecessor sins. And sometimes we get a little, con, a little conflicted, maybe a little defensive when we start hearing about people having to confess the sins of the people that aren't them, right? It's like, well, I didn't do that. Why do I have to be the one who's held responsible for all this? I can't go back and do anything about what my ancestors did. I can't go back and deal with this. Why why is it that somebody thinks I need to be responsible? Why I need to deal with reparations for, for this specific event? This has nothing to do with me. No, you can't go back. Of course you can't go back and do anything about it. And Nehemiah isn't saying that you should. So what's the point? I mean, obviously there's some reason to this, right? So in this confession of sin, it's acknowledging that it happened. And sometimes that is important. It's saying... The, the actions, the, the words, the, the, the things that my ancestors did caused pain, caused hurt, and I acknowledge that that took place. And that same sin has now taken place in my life today. I'm acknowledging it happened then. I'm acknowledging that it happened now. And God, I am repenting from the sin that my fathers did. I'm repenting from the sin that I did. I'm turning away from that. I am breaking that cycle and now moving forward in what you have called me, to, the way that you have called me to live. Can I tell you there is room for this form of repentance in us today? Whether it's we as a nation in the United States of America need to look back at the things that we have done to various people groups. Whether it's we as individuals need to look back at our family line and and things that have happened in our family. Again, it's not a matter of saying, well, you're responsible for the actions that have taken place. But it's an acknowledgement saying, this happened, I acknowledge it, and I'm committing to changing going forward. We repent, we turn away from that sin and instead choose to walk in the way that God has called us to walk. Next question is why, why did the people of God, why did the Israelites separate themselves during this time? And so, so often we look at separation. We look at, at this matter of, of stepping away as being prideful. Uh, that, there's, that They were better than, and so they needed to, to separate themselves so that they could, could understand the things of God. But it's, it's not that way. The, the people of the Israelite nation were chosen to be the people of God. That, that was the, the promise. That was the commitment that came down to Abraham, that this was to be a chosen people a people that God had revealed himself to and who had he had chosen to dwell amongst and this was also the people who had chosen to step away from God they had chosen to step away from being chosen And so they recognized that responsibility of repentance, while while there was this other people, there were lots of other people groups that were with the Israelite people, the Israelite nation had the responsibility of coming back first. If we look outside, if we read the news, if you look on social media, we see a world that is hurting a world that is broken, a world that is dying, that is lost in sin, acting just like the world that it is. Can I tell you that we should not be surprised when a world that does not know Jesus acts like it doesn't know Jesus? It is. It breaks my heart when we see the things that are happening in public school, when we see the the type of teaching that's taking place in public school. It breaks my heart when we see the stuff that, that happens in our government, when we see government leaders making choices that aren't in line with the Bible, aren't in line with the words of Jesus. Those things are sad. We should not be surprised that that is happening. Church, what does surprise me and shock me is when I see the church acting the way the world is acting. That's the problem. And that's where Israel is at, is saying, God, forgive us. We, we have acted like every other people group, and we, are, we have been chosen. We have been set aside. Forgive us. We knew better. Everyone else acted the way that they have acted for centuries, for however long, and yet the people of God had been chosen, had been given instruction. There had been people sent to them to lead them in the ways that they should go, and yet they chose to step away. Church, we are the same way. We know better, and yet we have missed the mark. But we can't hit rewind. The people of Israel can't hit rewind we can only move forward according to the ways of Jesus. And so, what happens next is the leaders help the people identify their place in Scripture. Chapter 9, 6 through 31. We have this entire narrative where the, the leaders recognize that before anything else can be accomplished, the people of Israel have to be reminded of who they are and where how they got to where they are today. Where do they fit in in the larger story of God's plan? As I was preparing for this Sunday, a... Challenging, yet I think really cool idea came to mind for what we'll, we're gonna tackle after we finish Nehemiah. I want to do a Sunday that preaches the entire Bible. Yeah, I, I promise I, I will do it within the time frame that I am allotted. <laughs> but I, I think there is value in gaining context. From the beginning to the end, what is the story, right? We've talked about the study. We've studied the story. That that when you start to understand that there's this, yes, there's the main narrative, the the narrative that exists in that chapter, in that book of the Bible, but there is this overarching story that that exists from the beginning to end. That is, God loves his people and he will do anything to make a way to be with them. That is the overarching story of the Bible. And so, what we see here as we look at uh, verses 6 through 31 is Nehemiah and, and the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, are coming and saying, You are this people. God created you, God has a plan for you. God never left you, even when you left him. And can I tell you, that story has not changed today. God created you. God loves you. God has never left you or forsaken you, even when you chose to step away. Starting at verse 6, God shows himself as the creator. The people are reminded that they have a creator that deserves to be worshipped. In verse 6, it says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. If he is the creator and we are the creation, then he deserves our praise. Sometimes there is this temptation when we find ourselves in the beauty of creation, whether you're, uh, I know you were at the, the top of the mountain, right, in Lassen, right, uh, last week. When you're at the top of the mountain or you're, you're in Hawaii and you're looking at this beautiful waterfall or you're, you're in the redwood forest or wherever you find beauty, there is this temptation to look and say, wow, how great it is that all of this has been made, has been made for me. Right, And we kind of put ourselves and we say, we're, we're expressing gratitude to God that, that we have this opportunity to see this. But that, that attitude has to be tweaked a little bit. Because yes, we have the privilege of seeing that. But did you know that all of creation is created to worship God, to glorify God? It wasn't really meant just for me to experience it. Psalm 8, who am I that you are mindful of me? I mean that's me personalizing it says who is man, but who am I? That's that's the attitude that I'm supposed to have when I'm in the midst of creation. God, who am I that you have allowed to me to view, to experience this amazing wonder? So moving forward, God. The people are reminded of the covenant, the promise that God made to his people. God initiated a relationship with Abraham. Starting at verse seven, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants, the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You've kept your promise because you are righteous. Abram didn't seek out God who's like, hey, hey, I wanna get your attention for a minute. I have something really important to talk to you about. No, God seeks out Abram and establishes a relationship with him to make a promise that you hear me quote over and over and over again, hopefully you know it by now, that through him, all of the people of the earth will be blessed. And Nehemiah didn't know it at the time, the, the religious leaders that are, are leading the people of Israel didn't know it at the time, but we know that that person is Jesus. Without that choosing, without that covenant promise, we wouldn't be here today. And that was just as true for the people of Israel that are hearing this now. So they're, they're reminded that God created the heavens and the earth. They're reminding that out of all of creation, God chose them as a people and made a promise to them. And finally, next we see that God powerfully rescues his people when they need a rescuer. Starting 9 through 12, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. God rescues his people. I had never really looked at the plagues as being what I think we can probably safely say is the first time where God shows up on the the national stage in the Bible, where where we see this interaction, this direction with this large nation, this directing the behavior of the nation of Egypt. God shows up and, and he unleashes these plagues against the people of Egypt, against the nation of Egypt, because there's a specific process. There's a specific event that needs to happen, right? The the people of Israel need to be rescued. So God shows up. He shows up with plagues. He shows up with parting the, the Red Sea so that the people of Israel can walk through on dry land. He shows up leading his people with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. I mean, God rescues And when he rescues, he really rescues. It's not like here, I I left some boats for you to ride across the Red Sea. It'll be fine. No, we're going to part and you're going to walk on dry land. Yeah, follow this star to get to where you need to go. Just so we don't have any wrong turns. I'm going to show up in a pillar of fire and you can just follow that. God doesn't just rescue he also gives direction for how to live after the rescue. In 13 through 15, it says, you came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them that your holy Sa- of your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven In their thirst, you brought them water from the rock, and you told them to go in and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. God provided rules after the redemption. God gives his people direction for how to remain in his presence. Right. This is God's people, God's place, God's presence. What we see here in the giving of the law, the giving of the, the decrees, of the regulation, is this is how you remain in my presence. This is what allows me to be with you. Sometimes you hear that criticism that the Old Testament is really just a bunch of rules and commandments to follow. It's just a whole bunch of regulations. Sometimes that's the the accusation that's leveraged at all of the Bible. But let's be clear on something. There are about 70 chapters that come before these commandments are given. It's only after God retrieves his people from captivity, rescuing them from the Red Sea where they all should have died, that. He says, hey, you're my people. It's probably time that you start acting like my people. And the Israelite people said, thank you so much for all these rules. We were really looking forward to them. No. Uh, (laughs) Is that what your kids say when you give them rules? Probably not. Uh, (laughs) But what we do see in verse 13 it says the laws and the regulations are right and good. This is what the people needed in order to live according to God's plan as a reflection of who God is. So let's let's pull this forward for just a minute. I can't earn my way to salvation I can never be good enough. My, my, I, you cannot follow enough commandments to make salvation available to you. It doesn't work that way. I receive salvation as a free gift that I could never earn. It is only after I receive salvation that God leads me through his word into what it means to live a holy and righteous life. Not so that I can earn more salvation. I don't need more salvation. God took care of that. But it's so that my life begins to outwardly reflect the inward change that has already taken place. It's the same thing. God's saying, I'm choosing you as my people. Now, this is how you live as my people. When we receive salvation, that's us saying that we are part of God's people that we have joined the, the team. God said, okay, you join the team. It, this is what you have to do to be on the team. This is what it means to be on the team. This is how you look like someone who's on the team. Matt, this is way too many references to team. Um, but It, it is. And so any anytime that there's a rule or a regulation given, because we are not perfect people, we see that there are also times where, where we fall away, where, where mistakes are made, where, where sin comes into the equation. And so we have the, the wilderness that the, the people of Israel are now reminded about. And let's, let's remember, what did the people of Israel that are in Nehemiah's time, what did they just come out of? They just came out of 70 years of being in exile. They know all about what it means to be disciplined for the things that they, that they weren't supposed to do. So now we, we see these people being reminded about a time in the wilderness where God supplied everything for a people that rebelled about anything. 16 through 21, it says, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. I was really trying to, like, how do we physically embody stiff-necked, like, I don't know, like, what <laughs> do you see stiff-necked children, like, <laughs> at school? <laughs> and what do they look like? Is there a physical, like, manifestation of being stiff-necked, or is it just a, yeah? Be on the lookout for what a physical manifestation of stiff-neckedness is this year. I encourage you to to find that. And if you can snap a photo, that would be great. Uh, (laughs) They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you were a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And therefore you did not desert them even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness, but by day the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way that they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them you did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. If God ever had the right to step away, it would have been at that time. And yet he still chose to be eager to forgive and steadfast in love. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who has great compassion, who is steadfast in his mercy. What does it mean to be steadfast? It means he's just unmovable. steadfast in mercy, steadfast in his love towards you. He has all of those things towards you. And even though we have made all of the mistakes that you've made, and I know each of us has this list that we check through of all of the mistakes that we've made, that that we're constantly battling with reminding ourselves about, that list that you have in your head, and regardless of that, he will never leave you or forsake you. And then we've come to uh, verses 22 through 25 where God fights their battles and establishes the people in the place that he has chosen for them. You gave them kingdoms and nations allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess." Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands along with their kings and their people and the people of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the fullest and were well nourished and they reveled in your great goodness. Just like God rescues completely, God establishes completely. I think this is a detail that is sometimes lost when we read about the, these people being brought into the promised land. They were brought into the promised land and they didn't have to plant their crops. They didn't have to plant their vineyards. They didn't have to collect for the, the coming uh, non productive season. Everything was already set for them. And so we have God's people well-fed, well-established in the promised land. What could possibly go wrong? They could. (laughs) They could go wrong. And so we see now this cycle where God is providing for his people. The people fall away. They suffer the consequences of choosing to fall away. God sends a Savior to bring them back to confront their sin. Verse 26, it says, But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them in your great compassion. You gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. But when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. And you say, man, those guys are terrible. Sure, God, I don't do anything like that. All my life, you have been faithful. Let me just say it. All my life, you have been so, so good. For every single time that I have stepped away, every single time that I have thought that my way was better than your way, you have always been there to bring me back. Now, does that mean that there aren't consequences that have existed in my life? That there, there aren't consequences that exist in your life for the choices that you've made? They are. Consequences exist. And, and what we see here is at verse 29 is a consequence that exists in the lives of the people of Israel. God disciplined their defiance, but refused to abandon them. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them, and by your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples, But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. And this is what the people just came out of. Like, I mean, this isn't like some fairy tale story that the people of Israel are like, "Wow, I wonder what that was like. (laughs) No, they were experiencing it. This was their reality. But even in this exile, the consequences for their sin, God still has a plan. I mean, he told Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah says, for I know the plans that I have for you. And yes, they're going to take 70 years. <laughs> so get comfortable. It's so funny how we leave that little part out when we quote that to everybody. I bet if we tacked the 70 years onto it, it probably wouldn't have half as many t-shirt sales as it does today. Um, the very exile that Nehemiah and the rest of the people have just come out of is the resumption of God's plan for his people. The people came to, to learn this lesson. That's why they're... they're I mean, I don't, how often do we say we need to set aside a quarter of the day for a confession and repentance? And can I tell you at the end of that, they probably still had some stuff to talk about. The people wanted to learn the lessons of those before them by embracing God's faithfulness and confessing the sins that existed in their life. That that was the, the goal of the people at this time in 32 through 38. It says, now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us On our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people. From the days of the kings of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or to the statutes that you warned them to keep. Even while they were in your kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land that you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see that we are slaves today. Slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings that you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please we are in great distress. They have to own it. God, you had a plan. You have a plan, and we stepped out of this plan. And because we chose to step out of this plan, we are slaves today. Because of our sin, because of the the things that we have done wrong, there's this consequence that we're experiencing. And yet, still, we trust you to be faithful. So, so what, what, do we, what do we take out of this today? I, I've, I hope that there's a connection that you're seeing, that, that the response of these people to who they were, the, the history that came before them, impacts it and informs who they are today. The same is true for us. If you're a follower of Christ, stop fighting against God's good plan for your life by breaking his commandments. God has given direction as to how we're supposed to live. If you've never made that decision to follow Christ, make the decision and choose to follow Christ, receive salvation. When conviction comes, when when you have that acknowledgement that there is something that needs to be addressed, whether it's conviction from sin that is happening in your family line, conviction about sin at a national level, or something that's personal, resist the condemnation trap that says that because that exists in your life, that separates you from God. When conviction comes, that should be what, put, what pushes us to God. God is eager to forgive. God is eager to be in right relationship. All my life, he has been faithful, and he will not stop being faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are mighty to save, God, that you have a plan for us. God, we thank you that you invite us to partner with you in this plan. And Lord, for those of us that have made a decision to follow you, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a direction as to how it is we should live. And God, I will be the first to say that that I mess it up. I mess it up over and over and over again. And yet still you are faithful. In the midst of my mistakes, in the midst of my screw-ups, Lord, you you never leave. You never forsake me. You never say, that, that's it. This is enough. No, you stay with us. And God, we thank you for that. Lord as we come to this this next week as we face the coming week Lord we ask that you would would allow us to to be that reflection of you cause us to be mindful of what it means to be a child of God and help us to live in a way that that brings others into this family in Jesus name we pray